Amen. Well, good morning, church. If you would, go to John chapter 20. Be back in John chapter 20. John chapter 20 will be in verse 19. We'll read through verse 23. Hear the word of the living God. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then his disciples, then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold the forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Let's pray. Oh Lord, what a glorious moment that must have been when You appeared for the first time to Your disciples as a group and they beheld Your body and they beheld Your scars. And so I pray this morning that by faith we could believe, though not seeing, that we would put our hope fully in You, that we would walk in Your peace, and that we would go out as the sent ones into the world to proclaim Your Gospel. We ask You to help us this morning to hear and to receive, to obey. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're pressing on into John chapter 20. I believe this is sermon number 4 in John 20. And in the narrative though, historically, we are still on the first Easter Sunday. So it's been four sermons, but we're still... Uh, on the same day historically, and up to this point we've looked primarily at the tomb narrative where Mary and Jesus have the first post-resurrection encounter, encounter. and then uh, we're now moving on into the section where the risen Christ appears to His disciples as a collective group. And these five verses are very, very, very rich, and so I don't want to say too much by introduction, but go ahead and move us right into the text and just walk through it verse by verse. So let's pick up in verse 19. He says, on the evening of that day. And so John gives us uh, this time marker to connect this section that we're about to read with the previous section where Jesus met with Mary Magdalene. And he does this because he wants us to understand this upcoming section in light of the events of the previous section. And when we do that, we remember what a day it has been for these disciples. You know, all of us have probably had the kinds of days where something unexpected happens and you just begin to rush and you begin to focus in on one thing. And before you know it, you've looked up and eight, nine, ten, twelve hours have gone by and you've not even stopped to think or process. Right When there's a a medical emergency and you just drop everything and you go and you just do what you need to do. Uh, Maybe some of you have experienced this. There's been high pressure situations at your job 
Maybe a deadline has been looming and you've just got to work and work and work and work to get whatever it is done. And you look up at the end of the day and it's 9, 10, 11 o'clock at night and you're going, what just happened? I've been zoned in, focused for hours. And we've been all over the place. I imagine that that's what this was like for the disciples except only magnified. And so for the sake of understanding the situation better, uh, let's think about the events that took place on this first Easter Sunday. So first, Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb early in the morning and she sees that the stone of the tomb has been rolled away. And so she, believing that someone has taken the body of Christ, runs and tells Peter and and John, and they run to the tomb and they see that the body is gone but that the garments are still there. And they, not yet understanding the Scriptures that Christ must rise, they leave and they go home. But Mary Magdalene and likely Jesus' mother, Mary, uh, they remain by the tomb weeping and Mary looks into the tomb and she sees two angels sitting in the tomb. And they begin to talk to her. And then she turns around and she sees Jesus Christ, but she thinks it's the gardener, but yet he speaks to her and she understands who it is. She sees her Lord and then she goes in obedience and tells the other disciples. And then after that, at some point, according to Luke 24, 34, Christ appears to Simon and we don't get that account in the gospel narratives, but Paul does tell us in first Corinthians 15 that Christ appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. So He appears to Simon, and after appearing to Simon, Jesus appears to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. They believe they're speaking to a traveler. They tell them all the events that they've seen and heard of the day and know of. And then when they go into the house and Christ breaks the bread and gives it to them, suddenly they realize that it's Jesus. And He vanishes from their eyes. And then they go back and they find the disciples and they tell them, what they have seen. And so here we are on the evening of the first Sunday and the disciples are together with the exception of Thomas and obviously Judas. And it's likely that they are in the upper room where Jesus shared the Passover meal with them on Thursday evening. And you can only imagine what is going on in their minds with all this having gone on on this first Easter Sunday. Yet, Their hearts are still hard in many ways. And they don't understand. And there's disbelief. And they're exhausted because of what all has transpired the last few days. And they know that the Jewish leaders are out. They know that the body has been taken. And the same ones who have crucified their Lord could possibly be coming for them also. And they know this. And they're afraid. So they lock, literally deadbolt, the doors shut so that no one can get in. But despite the fact that the doors are deadbolted shut, the absolutely incredible happens. It goes on to say, Jesus came and stood among them. And so last week we got into the, the nature of Christ's resurrected body. So I won't say much about that this morning. So whether Jesus passed through the door or whether He unlocked the door, 
or whether he just appeared in the midst of the disciples, the emphasis is on the fact that Jesus came to them. He came to them despite the fact that the doors were shut so that no one could get in. And this is a direct fulfillment of what Jesus said to them just a few days prior back in John 14, 18 and 19, when he says, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. And he says, because I live, you also will live. And then look at what he says. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. He says it twice. And this statement is loaded theologically, but before we get into all of that, let this reality land on you. The first thing that the risen Savior does for these weak, tired, compromised disciples is to calm them down by saying, Peace to you. Peace be with you. How kind. How kind. How gentle. How lowly. How gracious is our Savior toward His people. And He shows them His hands in His side. Because according to Luke 24, the disciples were frightened and they thought that they were seeing a spirit. I mean, imagine how startling and how terrifying this would have been. I mean, they've done everything they can to keep the Jews out, trying to remain hidden, and then all of a sudden, Jesus is just standing there in their midst. It would have been terrifying. It would have been frightening for them. I mean, no wonder liberal scholars claim that the disciples were just hallucinating. This is astonishing. It's unthinkable. But again, Jesus, so loving, so gracious, so gracious, He shows them for an undeniable proof the scars in His wrists and in His feet and in His side. He shows them where the nails were driven in His hands and feet according to Luke and also according to John where that Roman soldier pierced the side of Christ and blood and water came out. And He says in Luke 24.39, See My hands and My feet that it is I Myself. See Me. Touch me. I'm not a ghost. Ghosts don't have bones and flesh as you see that I have. Jesus tells them. And He gives them an undeniable reality that He has been raised from the dead. Uh, But this peace that Jesus pronounces is much more than just words to calm them down in an anxious moment. It's much more than that. And as I said earlier, there are profound theological truths here. This alludes back to John 14.27 when He says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. And He shows them the scars on His body not merely as a way to authenticate His identity, but as a way to show them the means by which this peace has come. The means by which this peace has come. The wounds on Jesus' hands and His feet and His side validate this peace. The peace that Jesus gives isn't some fleeting emotional feeling. It isn't just some state of mind. It's a state of reality. It's a state of being. 
It's in Jesus' wounds prove this reality. As the Scripture says in Isaiah 53.5, but He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds, we are healed. It's amazing. Brothers and sisters, if you are looking for peace this morning, you will not find it in this world. You will not find it in this world. You will only find it in the crucified and risen Lamb. And He gives true peace. Not only do these scars authenticate the identity of Christ before the disciples, but they will remind us for all eternity, for all eternity, that Jesus Christ became a sufficient sacrifice for our sins And He died the death that we deserve to die on our behalf. But then He rose from the grave and conquered death for us. I mean, this is what we see in Revelation 5 when John sees that incredible vision of God holding a scroll in heaven. And it says that no one is worthy to open the scroll or unopen its seven seals. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth is found worthy to open the scroll. And so John begins to weep because no one is found worthy to open the scroll. But then one of the elders comes up to him and says, Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And it goes on to say, "...and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain." Standing. A standing lamb yet slain. The heavenly perspective we get of Jesus Christ is a lamb that has been slain, yet it is standing. And it receives worship and honor and everlasting praise. And these disciples see this Lamb who was slain and they see His scars. And they know He has just been crucified, yet on this first day of the week they behold Him standing in their midst because He came to them, yet He is still bearing in His body the marks that brought us peace. Maybe you're here this morning and you're struggling with assurance of salvation. You know, maybe you say, how can I be certain that my sins are forgiven? I'm trying to live for the Lord. I'm trying to walk out my salvation. But how do I know that when I stand before Him, He won't turn me away because my sins are just too much, too bad? You need look no further, brother or sister to the eternal wounds of Jesus Christ. They show, they demonstrate, they prove that Jesus has made a perfect sacrifice, a sufficient sacrifice for sins. God does not just overlook sins. Jesus dealt with them. And His wounds show that He has dealt with them sufficiently. And these are the only wounds that will remain for all eternity. And it goes on to say in verse 20 that they were glad when they saw the Lord. I mean, can you imagine how exuberant, how overwhelmed with joy the disciples would have been when they realized that their Lord had been raised from the dead? 
this week I was trying to think about what it must have been like for them. And really, <clears throat> all the illustrations fall short. I mean, we're think, think about this. The man that they had been following around for years, for three years, hearing his teaching, seeing his miracles, the one that they thought would deliver Israel, the one that they began to put their hope in, the one that they began to understand as the Christ, the Son of God, they watched Him be crucified and die. And yet, here He is, alive in their midst, and they were overwhelmed with joy. And the only thing I could think about is when you're having a nightmare. And this still falls short, but have you ever had a nightmare? And you're in your sleep imagining the worst thing you could possibly imagine. And then you wake up and you say, thank God, I was dreaming. It's not real. The disciples were in a nightmare. Their Lord had been crucified, and yet here He is standing in their midst, alive. And they were overwhelmed with joy and relief when they saw the Lord. And it says, He says to them again a second time, peace be with you. But notice what it does not say. He does not say, peace with you, be with you. The mission is complete. Now I'm going to take you all to heaven with me. He doesn't say, peace be with you. Now hang out in this room and keep the door shut and wait till the world falls apart and then I'll come back and rescue you. He doesn't say that. What does He go on to say? Verse 21, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you as the Father has sent Me, even so I am sending you. And this harkens back to Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17-18 where He says, as you sent Me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Now that begs the question, sent into the world for what? Because clearly there are things that Jesus was sent into the world to do that the church is not going to do. Like obey God's law perfectly and lay His life down as a substitutionary atonement for sins and accomplish redemption. And so, what has Christ sent His people into the world to do? Uh, well, the church has multiple purposes in the world, and it would take quite some time to unpack all the ways in which the church is supposed to be in the world. But any time we try to understand a specific verse, we have to look at the verse in its context. And so the context of this passage has been that Jesus Christ gives peace, and He can give peace because He has died and has been raised from the dead. And Jesus has been saying over and over in the Gospel, albeit in different ways, I am the way. I am the means by which you can know God. I am the means by which you can be forgiven. John 3.16-17 For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. And here it is. Listen. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. The Father sent the Son to the world to save the world. And Jesus accomplished salvation for the world by means of His crucifixion and His resurrection. And now, Jesus sends His disciples into the world not to save the world in the exact same way, but to preach the message by which the world can be saved. What is that message? It's the message of the crucified and risen Lamb. 
Scholars call this the Johannine Great Commission. Brothers and sisters, I am thankful that Reformed Christians are beginning to recover what the church is supposed to be doing in the world. I'm, I'm glad we're beginning to think biblically about work and about the cultural mandate and about bearing children and, and using our money well. I'm glad that we're recovering that. I'm glad we're thinking deeply about that. And I do think that we should play the long game. I do think we should have many children and we should raise them up and send them out. I think we should speak prophetically to the culture. I'm for all that, but brothers and sisters, at the heart of the mission that Jesus has sent us into the world to do is to preach the message of reconciliation. That God has made a way for sinners to be reconciled to Himself through His sacrifice. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 shows this more clearly maybe than any other passage. He says, all this is from God who, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That ministry of reconciliation was not only given to the apostles, but this continues to be the ministry of the church to this day to implore people, all people, be reconciled to God in Christ. Repent of your sins. Believe in His sacrifice. Have peace with God. Now, another fascinating detail we get in this text uh, that we may be tempted to just sort of read over is back in verse 19 when John uses that phrase on the first day of the week. On the surface, that may seem uh, meaningless, but it's interesting that this is the second time in John chapter 20 that John tells us that it's the first day of the week. Uh, he could have just said on the evening of that day and we would have known from the previous narrative, that we're still on Easter Sunday. And so why would John tell his readers twice about the same day that it's the first day of the week? He's clearly trying to emphasize something, and I think John is doing something profoundly theological. I think John is setting this narrative in creation language. The reason I think that it's not only because John emphasizes that this is the first day of the week, but also because of verse 22. It says, and when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now this is one of those verses that I've read throughout my entire Christian life and I've wrestled with and I don't know that I've ever, up until now, probably this week, come to a real solid understanding of what that verse means. And there are a few different ways that people interpret this verse, and I think it would be helpful to just rule a few of those options out before moving forward. Some people think this verse is describing Pentecost or the outpouring of the Spirit from John's perspective. So they'll say that this is the moment that the, that the apostles received the Holy Spirit. The problem with that is obviously chronologically, Pentecost is still 50 days away. 
And John was at Pentecost. And so why would John contradict an event that he himself was at? Especially since Acts was likely written well before the Gospel of John. And even if one could argue that the ten disciples received the Holy Spirit, you would have a really hard time proving that based upon the way that they go on to live right after this. I mean, we're going to see next week that eight days later, they're still locked up in the, in the room. And Jesus appears to them again. And, and then after that, Peter gets this grand idea that he's going to go fishing. And the disciples say, well, hey, we'll go with you too. And Jesus appears to them again. You know, we don't see the boldness. We don't see Peter preaching. We don't see miracles and people getting up and being raised. It's not there. The power has not been given yet. Plus, Jesus told His disciples that He could not send the Helper until He first went away. Until He ascended. And so the ascension precedes the giving of the Spirit. And so I don't think there's any real ground to say that the the disciples received the Spirit here. And some have said that Jesus has given them sort of like a a taste of the Spirit, you know, to get them to Pentecost. Uh, But I just find that unconvincing. Others argue, and this is the view that I used to take, that this verse is not describing the outpouring of the Spirit, but regeneration. And so the idea is that at this moment, Jesus is breathing new life into the disciples in a salvific sense. And while there are some attractive parts to that, The problem is that just seems to be forcing systematic theological terms onto the Gospel of John. John just doesn't seem to be interested in parsing out the moments of our redemption. And I think the best way of understanding this verse is to understand it symbolically or prophetically and that not that any efficacy is being given here in this moment. When Jesus breathes and says, receive the Holy Spirit, it's a prophetic gesture about what's about to happen at Pentecost. And again, when we understand this verse in light of the theme of creation, all of a sudden, this makes a lot of sense. Uh, I mean, think about Psalm 33, 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth, all their host. And think about this. How did God create Adam in the very beginning? It says in Genesis 2.27, Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and He breathed into His nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. So the first man was created from dust, but when God breathed into him, he became a living being. And we see the same thing from a spiritual perspective in Ezekiel 36 and 37. Uh, These passages describe God's ability to recreate a people for Himself and to give them the ability and the power to walk in His ways. He says in Ezekiel 36, 26, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will put My Spirit within you and cause you to walk in My statutes and be careful to obey My rules. That's a promise of the new covenant. And then in Ezekiel 37, he has that incredible vision where he's in a valley of dry bones. And God says to him, Son of man, can these bones live? And he answered, O Lord God, You know. Then He said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. 
Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath, also translated spirit, to enter you and you shall live. Do you hear the theme of resurrection there? And he goes on to say to Ezekiel, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as He commanded me, and the breath came into them. And listen, and they lived and stood on their feet. An exceedingly great army. So we see in this the theme of resurrection, the theme of breath, the theme of spirit, the theme of living, the theme of recreation. That God will by His Spirit, by His breath, raise up a people for Himself who will know Him and walk in His ways. Now fast forward to John 20, and what's the theme of the chapter? It's resurrection. And we see breath. And we see spirit. And we see life. And I think that just as we see Ezekiel prophesying to those dry bones and the breath of God entering them and bringing them to life so that a community of saints is raised up, Jesus here in verse 23 is prophetically doing the same exact thing. Because what does He do? He breathes and says to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Receive the promise of the new covenant. And He creates on this first Easter Sunday the new covenant community that was formed as a result of His resurrection. And this people will be characterized by the fact that God has put His Spirit in them and breathed into them and raised them from the dead and given them life. This is exactly what I think Paul means in Galatians 6.15 when he says, For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Those ethnic identity markers no longer have anything to do with the fact of whether or not you are a part of the people of God. What matters is if you are a new creation. Have you been recreated? Has God breathed His life into you and put His Spirit in you so that you walk in His ways? 1 Corinthians 15.45 Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. So whereas Adam only received the breath of life and came alive, Jesus Christ has the ability to give this new life. He said earlier in John 5.26 For as the Father has life in Himself, so also He has granted the Son, to have life in Himself. God promises to create a new people. And this people will be characterized by the fact that the Spirit will be in them and will live in them. And they will walk in His ways. And they will have hearts that are bent toward obeying His law. On this first Resurrection Sunday, not only was Christ raised, but a resurrected people was made. Now it makes total sense why John would emphasize that it's the first day of the week, doesn't it? The first day of the week is resurrection day. It's the Lord's day. It's the day of the new creation. This is why Christians for 2,000 years, this isn't a Western tradition, 
For 2,000 years, the Christian church has met not on Saturday, but on the first day of the week. And this is why, whether you agree or not, many Reformed Protestants have, have taught and have believed that the Sabbath day, the new Sabbath for the people of God, is on Sunday. And many scholars and pastors I've heard say that this is the first church service in church history. We know from Acts 20 that the early church often gathered on the evening of the Lord's Day. So that's just one more reason to come to church on Sunday evening. Amen? And the last verse in our section here seems to make the most sense in light of the fact that Jesus is speaking to His disciples as a new community. Look at verse 23. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, we have to work hard to understand what that verse means because the Roman Catholics take that verse and they believe that the priest actually has the ability, the efficacy in himself to forgive people or not to forgive people upon their confession of their sins. It's not the same thing that we do when we give an assurance of pardon by reading a passage of Scripture. But they actually believe that sins are being forgiven by the priest upon confession. And so we would all reject that and say that they are taking these words too far in light of the testimony of the rest of Scripture. However, the verse is still here. So we have to deal with it. Now I think we can understand this verse in light of the previous verse. The verse is that Christ, through His resurrection and crucifixion, has made a way for people to have peace with God. And now Christ is commissioning His church, His community, to go into the world, verse 21, to preach this message and to proclaim to all the world that any who believe in this crucified and resurrected Lamb will have peace with God and will have forgiveness of their sins. And all who reject that message have their forgiveness withheld. And they will die in their unbelief. I think that's legitimate and that's true. That's the Protestant way to understand this verse. But what struck me as really interesting this week, and it's something that I just could not move away from, was how similar this verse was and is to the verses in Matthew 16 and Matthew 18 about the keys of the kingdom and about binding and loosing. And about how He has given the church the authority to bind and to loose. He says in Matthew 18, 18-20, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by My Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in My name, there I am among them. There just seems to be a lot of parallels between Matthew 18 and this section in John 20. And if you remember last summer, uh, we did a four-week series on Matthew 18 where we just walked through verse by verse in Matthew 18. And what we saw in that long discourse is that Jesus is giving the structure for the relational life for His new community for His church. And many of you know that in Matthew 18 is that watershed passage on church discipline. 
And Jesus in that passage tells the community, He tells the church that it has authority to stand on His Word, being led by His Spirit to make communal judgments on people. To bring them into the community and also to take them out of the community. So, if the community, the church, not arbitrarily, not being led by emotions, but if they are standing on Christ's Word, being led by the Spirit, if they judge one of its members to be living so inconsistently with the life that Jesus taught, they have the authority to remove that member from its fellowship. And Jesus says, if two or three of you are gathered in My name and you agree on that, I'm with you doing it. And it's been done. It's been done in heaven. Hence, the best translation, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven because the church isn't doing something and then heaven responding to it. The church is just making official on the earth what is already true in heaven. And I think verse 23 could be saying something very similar because you could literally translate it. If you forgive the sins of any, they have been forgiven. And if you withhold the forgiveness of any, it has been withheld. And so similarly to Matthew 18, heaven doesn't react to the church or to a priest when we say your sins are forgiven. On the contrary, the church, when functioning under the power of the Spirit and under the authority of Christ's Word, we declare on earth what has already been declared in heaven. And so the point is not that we have some arbitrary, arbitrary authority to forgive sins. The point is not that you can go to a priest and confess your sins and be forgiven because he has the power to do that. That's not the point. The point is that the church has the authority as it proclaims the biblical gospel in the power of the Spirit to say what Jesus has already said. That if you come to Him, if you put your faith in Him, if you receive His message, His work, His life, if you trust in His crucifixion, in His resurrection, and follow Him, your sins are forgiven. And if you reject that message, your sins are not forgiven. And this authority reaches outwardly to the world and also inwardly to all its members as the church exercises the keys of the kingdom. So brothers and sisters, we could say much, much more, but what a great privilege we have to be the New Testament people of God. We are the people on whom the end of the ages have dawned. We have the Spirit of God that has been poured out in full measure. And we are awaiting the return of our King. We live the life that the prophets longed to see. The fullness of the Gospel. The fullness of the Spirit at work in the church. It is a great privilege, brothers and sisters. Do not let the state of the world that you live in discourage you. We are a highly privileged people. And Jesus Christ says, go into the world. Proclaim the message of reconciliation. Use the message that I've given to save the world because He has come into the world not to condemn it, but to save it. Amen? And so as we come uh, to the table
Let these things be on your hearts and on your minds. Uh, If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you've received this crucified and risen Lamb and you've been baptized, uh, we would ask that you come and take the supper with us. I welcome you to do that. And if you're not, uh, we would ask you to remain in your seat. But in your bulletin, there are a couple of prayers that you can pray during this time. And so take a few moments to yourselves and think about the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about His eternal wounds that paid for your sins. And when you're ready, uh, come to the table with joy and take the elements and return to your seat and we'll take the supper together. Let me pray for us. Uh, Father, uh, just thank You so much, God, for sending Your Son to die. To die the death that we deserved. And we thank You for raising Him up. And we thank You that He did not leave His disciples as orphans, but He came to them. And He appeared to them. And I thank You that we have their Word to stand on. And so I pray that, Lord, just as You sent them into the world, that we would go as the apostolic church into the world and proclaim this message and that You would forgive the sins of many as they believe. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.